We will read together the first 21 verses, verses 1 through 21 of Jeremiah 31. So let us hear the word of God beginning at Jeremiah 31, verse 1. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee. And thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant, and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise, ye... And let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame. The woman with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and will make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord." Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children, because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy." And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, 
and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. Thus far we read in the inspired scriptures. On the basis of this passage of the Word of God and the entirety of the Scriptures, we consider Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Beginning with question 88. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts. Of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we return to the Heidelberg Catechism, and in order to get our bearings once again as to where we are in the Catechism, we can think about the Heidelberg Catechism as a building with three rooms in it. The first and small room of this building called the Heidelberg Catechism is the first section of the Catechism. And the name of this room is Our Misery. That's where the catechism began, showing to us the misery of our sin and the condemnation that we deserve. But that is just the small room of this house, and quickly we were led through that room into the expansive and beautiful second room of the catechism, really the living room, if you will, called Our Deliverance. And there the catechism explained to us the biblical doctrine of salvation. How we are delivered from our sins and miseries, not by our own works, but by the work of the one and only Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week, with Lord's Day 32, we came to the door from that second room, our salvation, to the third room entitled 
our gratitude, our thanksgiving to God. And Lord's Day 32 served as the doorkeeper. Lord's Day 32 made sure that we understood the only way from the second room into the third room, namely grace. As question and answer 86 said, giving us a condensed summary of the second section of the catechism, since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. The doorkeeper, Lord's Day 32, wanted to reemphasize that. That's what the whole second section of the catechism taught us about. Understanding that, we are prepared to step across the threshold into the third and final room of the catechism, gratitude. And as the doorkeeper of Lord's Day 32 ushers us into that third room, we come into a beautiful chamber in which are many good and lovely things. And in this third room, gratitude, there are two big tables. The two main sections of the third section of the Catechism. One table is entitled Obedience, and the other table is called Prayer. The rest of the Catechism is going to explain to us the two main ways that we show God our gratitude. By obeying His law and by living a life of Christian prayer. And now as we enter that third room... The first thing that we meet is Lord's Day 33. Before we get to that first table entitled Obedience to God's Law, we meet Lord's Day 33, which sets before us a very important subject, the true conversion of man. And it is fitting that the Catechism introduces this subject to us before it leads us to the Ten Commandments in the Lord's Prayer because this subject defines the Christian's life of gratitude. The thankful life of the Christian in response to the sovereign grace of God is a life of daily conversion. Daily, ongoing conversion. Turning from sin and turning to God. Conversion is an essential ingredient of true gratitude. It is a fundamental part of offering ourselves as living sacrifices of thanks to our God. Conversion is the battlefield of the Christian life in which we are called to fight the good fight of faith. Conversion is the good pleasure of God for us. It is our calling in this life. Thus, this morning, we enter into a consideration of the true conversion of man. The Lord's Day is going to instruct us concerning our calling, a calling that we must take seriously. But the Lord's Day also comforts us. For in this Lord's Day, we see that it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We are not left to convert ourselves of our own strength. If we were, we never would be converted. But God works conversion in us. And by the power of His Spirit, we live out of that work in us. He turns us so that we are turned. And there's the connection to Jeremiah 31, especially verses 18 and 19, which we will consider in conjunction with this Lord's Day. In this part of Jeremiah 18 and 19, we see a prayer 
that expresses the idea of true conversion very beautifully. And thus we enter into this Lord's Day with this prayer in our hearts and on our lips. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. The true conversion of man is our theme. We look first at what it is, secondly at whose work it is, and then finally and briefly what its fruit is. We're going to start by looking at the idea of conversion in a general way. The term conversion, which appears at the beginning of Lord's Day 33, the true conversion of man, that word conversion literally means a turn around. Conversion is a spiritual U-turn. To use an illustration, you are going down the road and you remember that you forgot something at home and so you make a U-turn, you turn all the way around and start heading in the other direction. That's conversion. Conversion is your life going in one direction or a part of your life going in one direction, namely the direction of sin, and you make a U-turn so that you go in the opposite direction. It is a turning away joined with a turning toward. We meet with this idea in Jeremiah 31, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 God says, I have surely heard Ephraim, and Ephraim there stands for the northern kingdom of Israel. I have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, and then the words that follow are the words of of the elect remnant of the northern kingdom after they were taken into captivity. It is a prayer of those elect believers. Thou hast chastened me, and I was chastened, as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. There you see the repentant spirit in these elect believers of the northern kingdom. God had chastened them for their persistent sin of idolatry and rebellion against him. They had been taken into captivity. And by means of that chastening, God had worked true repentance in the elect remnant of the northern kingdom. And springing from that work of God in their hearts, they cry out, with this repentant prayer. They recognize that in their idolatry, they were like stubborn bulls. They have been chastened now. They have been brought low. And the Lord has turned them in sorrow for their sin. There's the idea of turning. That's conversion. And the same language we can find in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 where the Apostle Paul reflects upon the conversion of the Thessalonian Christians from heathendom to Christianity. There in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 we read, For they themselves show show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Now this, And how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A turning away joined with a turning toward. Away from sin, toward 
God. That's conversion. Now, conversion can be given a definition, and that's what we do now, a definition. You can define this conversion this way. It's a radical spiritual turning of your whole person. A radical spiritual turning of your whole person, which God, by His Spirit, sovereignly works in the regenerated believer so that you consciously and actively turn from sin and turn towards God. First thing to note is that conversion is a spiritual turning about of the whole person. Conversion involves all of you turning from sin and turning towards God. It's not partial. It's not just outward. It's not behavior modification such that we bring our outward conduct into conformity with the letter of God's law, but it is a spiritual inward turning as well. It is a turning around of the whole person, your inner man and the life that flows from your heart. Turning your whole person from the service of sin to the love and service of God. That's evident from Jeremiah 31 verse 18 where the elect remnant in Ephraim says, turn me, not turn part of me, but turn me, all of who I am, and I shall be turned. Second thing to notice about our definition of conversion is that this radical spiritual turning of our whole person from sin and towards God is accomplished through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Conversion begins and arises from the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. Regeneration, you remember, is that very first sovereign work of God in our hearts in which he, he plants that new life of Christ there and raises us from spiritual death unto spiritual life. That's what the Bible means when it talks about, for example, in John 3, of our spiritual rebirth, being born again, regeneration, that first implanting of the new life of Jesus Christ. In that work of regeneration, man is completely passive because he's spiritually dead. It's a resurrection unto newness of life. But now after the Holy Spirit regenerates an elect person, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave that person, but the Spirit indwells that person. And the Spirit continues to work in that person. And that's where conversion comes from. The continued operation of the Spirit in the regenerated elect believer. And therefore, in the third place, this radical spiritual turning of our whole person away from sin and unto God is a work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes throughout our lifetime. It's an ongoing work. Conversion is something that's not just one and done. It's daily. Daily and ongoing. Now, because God is pleased to gather his people in different ways, different Christians can have slightly different experience of conversion. For example, there may be a Christian who grew up as an adherent to a false religion and later in life is 
converted and is brought to the Christian faith. And that person can remember a decisive moment when they were turned from idolatry and turned to God. That was the case with the Thessalonians we read about a moment ago. They grew up worshiping the Greek and Roman gods. And then the word of the gospel came to them through the mouthpiece of Paul and the Spirit worked by that word and changed them and turned them. And they could remember a decisive moment when they were turned to God. And thereafter, the life of daily conversion, more and more turning, took place. There may be someone who grew up in the church, but they didn't really believe until later in life when the Lord took hold of their heart and brought them to true faith. Think of someone like the Apostle Paul, who though he grew up in the Old Testament church, and though he was a meticulous observer of the Old Testament law, he was a man enslaved to the Pharisaic religion, which was an invention of man. And he had his decisive conversion take place on the road to Damascus when Jesus himself appeared to him and turned Paul around, a complete spiritual U-turn. Or as is likely the case with many of us. We grew up in the church. God worked faith in our hearts, true faith from our earliest days, so that we don't remember a moment when we were decisively turned from idols to the service of the living God. As far back as we can remember, we believed. But our experience of conversion is that daily continual, more and more turning from sin and turning unto the living God. So, conversion, the way it is experienced, differs somewhat according to the way that God leads His people, the way that He gathers them into the church. Yet, nonetheless, what the Catechism is talking about here, daily conversion is the experience of every true believer after they have come to conscious faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit works in the believer to turn him or her more and more away from sin and unto God. That's conversion from a general point of view. Having laid that groundwork, we're in a position now to focus our attention more specifically on the two main elements of conversion as they are described in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Bible, and therefore our catechism, uses more specific terms to describe this turning away from sin and this turning toward God. And those specific terms are the mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man. Turning from sin is mortifying the old and turning to God is quickening the new. And thus, these two things ought to characterize the entire life of gratitude that the Christian lives in the service of the God of his salvation. Day by day, more and more, mortifying my old man, quickening my new man. Well, to enter into this, it requires that we first understand what the old man and what the new man is. Starting with the old man. The old man is you 
from the viewpoint of your fallen, totally depraved nature with which you were born. Psalm 51 says that all of us are conceived and born in sin. We are born with a totally depraved human nature, and that's our old man. The old man refers to your sinful flesh with all its lusts, all its motions, all its deeds. Your sinful nature which is prone to hate God and prone to hate your neighbor. Your sinful nature which is wholly corrupt and inclined to all evil. This old man cannot be improved. This old man cannot be reformed. This old man must be crucified, mortified, and put off. Your sinful nature and mine, with which we were born, is called our old man because of its origin. It is old because it has its origin going all the way back to Father Adam and the fall of our first parents. Before the fall of the human race into sin, there was no old man because the human nature was intact. It was uncorrupted. It was ethically perfect as God created it. Now, God created the whole human nature in Father Adam, who was the federal head of the human race, as well as the first father of the human race. And when Adam fell, he corrupted the entire human nature, such that, like a hereditary disease, this fallen nature is communicated to all of the descendants of Adam. And thus, our fallen, corrupt nature, our old man, comes to us from Father Adam. Its origin is all the way back there at the fall of the human race. That's the old man, our sinful flesh, our fallen nature. The Catechism, based on Scripture, also speaks of the new man. What is that? The new man is you from the viewpoint of the new life of Christ that has been planted in you by the sovereign operation of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the new man is you as you are in Jesus Christ. The new man is your new self as a regenerated child of God, united now to the second Adam, your new head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your new man is that new principle of life planted in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Your new man is you as you are a branch grafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ. Your new man is you in Christ. This new man is called new because of Its origin. The new man is born by the Holy Spirit's operation in regeneration. When you are spiritually born again, there is the birth of the new man in Christ. The Spirit gives you a new heart. And that heart is the center of your existence from a spiritual and an ethical point of view. From your heart, your new heart in Christ arises new issues of new life. When God gives you that new heart, He radically turns you around. He calls you out of darkness into His marvelous light in the depths of your being. It is a spiritual heart transplant that makes you a new creature in Jesus Christ. 
As 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 taught us last week, that spiritual heart transplant then infuses new qualities into your will. And from that seed of new life grows and blossoms true faith, good works, and the like. So let's understand the relationship then between the new man and the old man. We mustn't go away this morning thinking that as a Christian I am two people. The old man and the new man are not two different persons. You are one person. But in you there are these two distinct principles that are at war now. Your old sinful nature which is at war with the new principle of life, your new heart in Jesus Christ. The new and old man are two contrary spiritual realities in you. So that your old sinful flesh every day is battling hard against your new renewed heart given you by that spiritual heart transplant and that spiritual new birth of regeneration. And thus, we speak about the old man and the new man both as being part of us. But now, your identity is rooted in your new man. The old man once reigned. The old man once reigned, but he has now been dethroned by the saving grace of God. You have been grafted into Jesus Christ. You are indwelt by His Spirit. Once again, you are a new Creature in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Even though we have that old man yet, and we're going to have him till the day that we die, our identity now is rooted and fixed in the new man in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And that new man, by the grace of God, is destined to overcome and to conquer the old man. And at the day of our death, that old man is at last fully done away with, and the new man is freed of him completely. And so this then explains the spiritual struggle that we all experience as regenerated believers. We experience it every day, that war inside of us. There are these lusts, there there are these desires, an inclination towards sin. That's our old nature. But we also have in us, and we feel it, do we not, that love for God, that desire to walk in His ways. That's the new man. And these two are constantly at war with one another. The old man, though he's been dethroned, is always vying for dominance. He wants to climb back up on the throne. And that's then the Christian's life of daily conversion. Our life of daily conversion is our struggle against the old man to continue to subdue him, suppress him, and put him off, and to live out of the new man. To keep the new man, as it were, on the throne in our lives so that we live out of that principle of new life and not out of the lusts of our old Sinful flesh. So now to finish off the first point, let's look specifically at the two parts of conversion. What we are called to do with regard to our old man and with regard to our new man. Now that we understand what the old and new man are. 
The first part of true conversion, turning from sin, is the mortification of the old man. That's the Word of God. It's calling to us with regard to the old man. Mortify. The word mortify simply means put to death. Destroy that old man. That's biblical language. Consider, for example, Colossians 3 verse 5 where we are called thus, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put that old man to death, the Word of God says. And that again emphasizes that the Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. Yes, against the wicked world. Yes, against the roaring lion of the devil. But the battle gets closest to home in that it's a battle against my own sinful flesh. It's warfare against my own sin. That's the battle of daily conversion. Our calling is to mortify our sin. That means we don't look for ways to peacefully coexist with sin in our lives. That doesn't mean we make certain treaties with our sinful flesh in which we grant or cede some territory to my sin so that the devil can have this part of my life, but the rest of it is God's. No. The Christian life of daily conversion is a life of all-out total warfare against sin. No peace treaties. No coexistence with sin. Mortification of sin is our calling. The mortification of the old man begins, as the Catechism explains in answer 89, with sincere sorrow for sin. That's really the the root out of which the mortification of sin springs. Sincere sorrow. And you see that in Jeremiah 31, verses 18 and 19. How Ephraim when brought to the consciousness of his sin by the operation of the Spirit, he bemoans himself. He expresses sorrow for his idolatry. That is the beginning. Very crucial starting point of the mortification of sin. Sorrow for sin. Understand that this sorrow for sin is not a superficial shedding of tears because of the consequences of sin. Yes, sin has consequences, and sin makes us miserable. And that misery is not fun. But the main reason we sorrow for sin is not because it affects my life in a bad way, but as the Catechism says, I sorrow that my sin has provoked God. To use the words of David in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. That's what grieves the heart of the believer. My sin has offended the Most High Majesty of God, who is not just my Creator, but is my Redeemer God and my Father through Jesus Christ. And that pricks and pierces my soul like nothing else. Sincere, genuine sorrow for sin is sorrow that I by my sins have provoked and offended the living God. And thus that sorrow then demonstrates itself not merely with the shedding of tears. Yes, true sorrow for sin may shed tears, but there are lots of fake sorrows and fake repentance that sheds a lot of tears. What distinguishes true sorrow for sin from fake sorrow is that true sorrow leads to genuine change. True sorrow 
accepts the consequences of one's sin and strives to change, strives to make a decisive break with that sin. The man who says, I'm sorry, and sheds a lot of tears but won't give up his sin is not repentant. And that sorrow is only skin deep. Genuine sorrow strives to decisively break with sin. Is that the kind of sorrow you and I have? There's an application we must take to heart. We must not cheapen the truths of this text as if conversion is this. I see my sin each week and I say I'm sorry and I resolve to myself or my neighbor I'm going to try to do better and then I go back and live the way I've been living and think, oh, it's not a big deal. I was sorry. Oh, I fell again. I'll be sorry again next week. That's not true sorrow. That's the sorrow of the world that offends God. True sorrow for sin is manifest in striving to change and to put it away. And that's why the Catechism then goes on from true sorrow of sin to speak of hatred for sin and fleeing from sin. From sorrow springs a holy hatred of sin. And really, a holy hatred of sin is an aspect of love for God. When we love God and love His holiness, we are going to despise that which offends Him and aggrieves Him. From sorrow, we come to hate our sin. We hate it for its evilness. We hate it because it aggrieves God. And motivated by that sorrow and that hatred and that love for God, we then take decisive action against our sin. We want to be rid of it. We want its power over us destroyed. And therefore, wherever that old man of ours rears his ugly head in our life, wherever sin surges up in our heart or mind, wherever temptation allures us, our response is to be one with holy hatred and hostility toward that sin. Mortify it. Mortify it. Thus, the Catechism says, flee. We can expand on that a little bit with a couple of other words. Flee, fight, and forsake. That's the action of mortifying our sin. Fleeing from it, fighting it, and forsaking it. That's the opposite of continuing to expose ourselves to sin. That's the opposite of succumbing to temptation. That's the opposite of holding on to sin in some dark corner of our life. No, flee, fight, forsake. Flee. That's not cowardice. In the spiritual battle against sin, we understand that our sin and our sinful nature is so much stronger than we are. We are weak. It's prudent to run, to flee from sin. That's one of the most prudent tactical maneuvers you can make in your spiritual warfare. Flee Sin. Think of Joseph. When exposed to the temptation of Potiphar's wife, he ran. And that applies to all sin. Run from it. When you find yourself in temptation, temptation which you may succumb to, temptation that is pulling at your heart, run. Get away. If there are sins you know you are particularly susceptible to. Make sure 
You don't wander into those places where you could easily fall. If there are activities that present a powerful temptation, avoid them. Flee. But of course, there are times when we cannot always flee. We cannot always flee. We must fight. Fight hand to hand against our old man. We fight not by our own might, but by the Spirit and by the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Fight sin by countering it with the Word of God. When we do that, when we flee from sin, and when we fight against our sins such that by the power of the Word we do not succumb to temptation, what that does is it starves the old man. The old man feeds and is nourished when we sin. But we starve him when we turn from sin. And as we turn from sin then and starve the old man, he gets weaker. One of the important ways that we fight against sin is by radically amputating things in our life that are the occasion for sin. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 29 through 30. And if thy right hand offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. Jesus there isn't saying engage in a physical amputation and maim your body. The point he's making is, if there's something in your life that's a continual stumbling block, if that iPhone continually tempts you such that it is a window through which you view many lurid and explicit and ungodly images, your calling is, cut it off. Get rid of it. It's far better for you to experience the pain of not being able to use that tool, having it cut out of your life, than it is for you to continue on in that sin. Fighting sin requires amputating those things from our lives which lead us into sin so that we can forsake it. Fighting and fleeing leads to forsaking. Breaking with that sin and putting it out of our lives. That doesn't mean we'll never struggle with temptation again. We're going to struggle with temptation our whole life long. But by the power of the Spirit, the believer is able to turn, to take that sin that you might be holding in this corner of your life, and you may have been holding it there for a long time, and get rid of it. Get rid of it. In sorrow, holy hatred for sin, flee, fight, forsake. That's the mortification of the old man. Now, the second part of conversion is turning to God. As the Catechism explains in the next question and answer, the quickening of the new man. To quicken here literally means to make alive. Not in the idea of resurrecting something that's dead, but enlivening, strengthening, feeding. The calling of the Christian is not only to turn from sin by mortifying it, fleeing, fighting, and forsaking it, But the other side of the coin is this, that I feed, I strengthen, I nurture the new man in Christ. That is, I strive to live out of that new principle of life planted in me by the Holy Spirit. Quickening the new man is the constant endeavor to put our whole life under the dominion of the new man in Christ and to live out of 
the power of the Spirit. The Catechism points out that this quickening of the new man begins with sincere joy in God through Christ. And notice the contrast there. The starting point of the mortification of the old man is true sorrow for sin. But the starting point of the quickening of the new man is true joy in God through Jesus Christ. We have that true joy because of the salvation which is accomplished by the work of Christ. The life of daily conversion is hard, yes. It's a bitter battle against our sin, but it's not pure misery. In fact, the daily conversion of the Christian is a joyful activity. The positive side is more and more rejoicing in the riches of Christ and what we have in Christ. And being thankful for what we have in Christ, striving in dependence upon His Spirit, more and more to please and to glorify Him. Joy. There's joy in daily conversion. Sincere joy in God. The Christian doesn't find his joy in sin anymore. Sin's pleasures do not satisfy the soul. That's the great lie of sin. Sin comes to you and says, indulge me and I will make you happy. But sin always lies. As soon as you sip that sweet drink of sin, it turns to poison. It turns to ash in the mouth. It never satisfies the soul. What truly satisfies the soul is the joy of God in Jesus Christ. And thus the quickening of the new man is living in that joy. Relishing in who God is and what God has done. And then taking action to glorify the God of my salvation. That joy expels sin. That joy stifles the old man. That joy defends against temptation. That joy in God leads us not to want to sin the way we used to want to sin. There is an expulsive power, as an old theologian once said, an expulsive power of renewed affections, of joy in God, when we rejoice in God and delight in His beauty and the beauty of His holiness, sin loses much of its attraction. And so this sincere joy in God then leads to the constant endeavor with love and delight to live according to the will of God as the Catechism goes on to explain, to live in good works. We delight to reflect God's beauty and His glory We delight to feed the new man. We delight in what God delights in. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We become a people zealous for good works. Not only by mortifying the old man do we starve our sinful flesh, but we are to feed the new man in Christ with the true spiritual food that builds him up. The Word of God. And thus... To energize us for the life of true conversion, let us give our attention to that word. Let us hear the preaching with a heart that is open to it. Let us be in our Bibles. Let us partake of the sacraments. Let us diligently frequent the church of God. Let us live in the life and fellowship of the church with one another. Let us love one another. Let us serve one another. Let us wash one another's feet. Let us visit the sick. Let us attend to the needs of God's people. In all of these things, we rejoice in God. And the new man is strengthened. 
And as the new man is strengthened, the old man is starved and strangled. That's our calling. Mortify the old. Quicken the new. Now, much more briefly, let us consider whose work this conversion is. And we start by emphasizing this important point. Conversion is the work of God in the elect believer. And about that we must be emphatic. Conversion is a part of salvation. And all of salvation is not man's work, but is God's work. His sovereign, gracious work alone. Conversion, turning from sin, turning to God, mortifying the old man, quickening the new man, that is not something man can do of himself. Of course, the natural man cannot because he is spiritually dead. But even the regenerated believer cannot convert himself of his own power. Though we are raised to new life in Jesus Christ, that spiritual resurrection does not now make us independent creatures. It does not give us a source of independent power that we now employ to convert ourselves, but we ever remain dependent upon the sovereign God of our salvation. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. Go back to Jeremiah 31, verse 18. What was Ephraim's prayer? Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. That establishes the very important point that conversion is the sovereign work of God in the child of God. Verse 18 is a cry that arose from a deep spiritual sense of their own inability and powerlessness. God had to turn Ephraim around. God had to convert Ephraim by His Spirit, employing the means of His Word. As mentioned earlier, the Spirit is the one who works in us to mortify the old man and quicken the new. The Holy Spirit who indwells us is the author of every spiritual good in us. He turns our minds and wills from sin. He turns us towards God. He illuminates our understanding. He imparts the gift of true and lively faith. He engrafts us into the true vine. He causes us to hear the preaching of the gospel with a hearing ear and an understanding heart. He applies that word to us. He causes us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and to come to Him. He works in us to turn from sin and turn to God. Conversion is the sovereign work of God by His grace. But in that connection, we must understand that as God converts man, He makes us conscious and active. That God performs the work of conversion does not mean the regenerated believer is unconscious, inactive, like a block or a piece of rock. The Bible makes very clear, conversion is God's work, but God works in us in such a way that He makes us conscious and active. And that's important to understand. 
The Christian's life of daily conversion is not a life of sitting in a spiritual lazy boy, doing nothing, and just waiting for stuff to happen. Though it's all God's work and accomplished all by His grace, the way God is pleased to work is this. He works in us in such a way that He causes us to be active conscious. He turns us, and we are turned. Jeremiah 31, verses 18 and 19 makes that clear. Verse 18, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. There's the sovereign work of God. But then verse 19 brings out the fruit of that sovereign work of God in us. God turns. And then verse 19 says, Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. The elect remnant of Ephraim was made conscious and active as God turned them. They were brought to see their sin, and they repented by the grace of God. And so the way to see it is this. Conversion is accomplished by the power of God. The source is God. It is God's work. But God is pleased to work in such a way that as He turns us, He makes us conscious, He makes us active, so that we strive to turn. And the fruit then, the fruit that is born as God works that turning in us is good works. That's the last question and answer of the catechism. We've already talked about what good works are. That was last week's catechism sermon. But here the catechism emphasizes the three main qualities or the distinguishing marks of a work that is truly good in God's eyes. It's one that arises from true faith. It is one that is done according to the standard of God's law, and it is one that is aimed at the goal of the glory of God. And thus, good works are not things that man invents. Good works are not what appeals to man. They are not based upon the imaginations or the institutions of men, but they are according to the Word of God. As the Spirit works in your heart... As the Spirit turns you, and He works in such a way that He makes you conscious and active in that turning, the fruit that He brings forth, good works done to the glory of God. And so we finish with the important application. Conversion. It must be our life. We must have a restless desire. More and more. That's the language of the catechism. More and more to put away sin and more and more to delight in God and walk in His ways. Is that the fervent desire of your life? More than earning your money. More than having a nice house more than enjoying the good things of this world, more than any earthly thing, my desire is daily to be converted to God. May it so be. Let us be comforted with the truth of the second point, that this monumental task of conversion is not something we're left to do of ourselves. We couldn't. 
We can't. It is God that worketh in us both to do and to will. Both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And that soothes and comforts the soul. God will perform this good work to the end. He will not forsake the work of His hands. And in that comfort, let us not wrongly respond by slipping into that spiritual lazy boy or simply coast through this Christian life saying, God will convert me. I don't have to worry about anything. But in that comfort, let us give glory to God by actively and consciously with all of our God-given might striving to turn from sin and striving more and more to live unto God. That honors Him. If God wanted us to just coast through this life, if God wanted us to sit in that spiritual lazy boy, He would have made us a piece of rock. But He didn't. He gave you a mind. He gave you a heart. He gave you a will. And He has renewed you in Jesus Christ and now He calls you and He says, glorify Me by devoting all that you are to Me, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Love Me with all that you are. Turn your whole person from sin. Turn to Me and delight in Me. May God use His Word to energize and strengthen us for that life of true conversion. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, turn Thou us and we shall be turned. Work in us by Thy Spirit such that we may actively and with joy strive in every area of our lives to turn from sin and to turn to Thee that in this way we may honor Thee, the sovereign God of our salvation. Amen.